0: Welcome to the Missouri Valley's Mobilizing Voices for Change One Valley podcast. I'm Kelly Burke, and joining me today is a name that Indiana State fans know quite well. Uh, Trent Miles grew up in Terre Haute and grew up going as a ball boy to Indiana State football games, where he eventually became a Hall of Fame player. In 1987, he got into the coaching side of things, first as a GA for Indiana State and eventually coming back as the head coach for the Sycamores. And today, Trent is officially out of coaching, but still making a massive impact in his hometown of Terre Haute. Uh, I feel like I should always call you coach. It's weird for me to call you Trent <laughs> at this point. It's How-
1: okay. My, my children call me that coach. So. Oh, do they? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> nice. Okay. I
0: I love it. Um, Before we start, I I needed to share with you, I I didn't get a chance to share this with you the other week when I saw you. Um, You won't remember this, but back when you were coaching, I want to say it was probably 2012-ish when you were at Indiana State. It was my very first season at the time. I was just working one game of the week for Mike Kern for the Valley. And so I would always work the game at Southern. And very first one I ever did as a sideline reporter, didn't have any idea what I was doing. They don't train you how to do that in college. So (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. I was so nervous. I I knew uh, Coach Lennon because I covered the Salukis all the time. So I felt comfortable with that. But I I didn't know you. And so I was terrified Um, just working my first game. I didn't want to mess up. And I have to tell you, uh, I remember to this day, Coach, that you were so welcoming to me. So nice. I think I went up to you before the game, um, just to introduce myself and remind you that I had to talk to you at halftime, and you couldn't have been nicer. And I just, to this day, I appreciate that because you just never know—you never know what you're getting with some coaches. So,
1: thank you. We didn't want to scare you off.
0: No, no. Yeah. Well, obviously, you haven't. So, and you—you you didn't. I'm still, still here doing it to this day. So, um, you know, let's start. You, you, and your family—you returned to Terre Haute a couple of years ago, and how special is it now to be back in your hometown, albeit in a different role? You're, you're now the CEO of the Terre Haute Boys and Girls Club.
1: Yeah, it's a lot different uh, for us. It was the first opportunity for our children to go to the same school like two or three years in a row. Mm-hmm. That was a whole purpose. Uh, our daughter, we have a daughter that's 16, a daughter of 14, a daughter of 13, my son's 11. And two of them were born in Seattle and two of them were born here, but they've lived everywhere. And, you know, Philly was great the experience. That was my last job was with the Eagles and it was a wonderful experience, but just the missing recitals and missing plays and games and practices and them not having a group of friends mm-hmm. and being a steady, you know, uh, situation where you, you know, you can stay there and live. I grew up in the same house for all my life. So wow. my children have lived in probably eight different homes in seven years, you know, so we uh, decided to hang it up and move, move back here for now and, and uh, get our kids going through school. And, and it's been great because the community has been so welcoming.
0: Yeah. How, how has your, your childhood experience growing up in Terre Haute really lended to your, your current mission at the Boys and Girls Club?
1: Well, I grew up in the Boys and Girls Club. You know, I was there every day playing. Back then, we were really big in basketball. And so everybody went to the club to hang out and, and shoot hoops during Christmas break, during spring break, you know, anytime you got a chance if you weren't in season. So it being back there and being in charge of it now and seeing the kids that come in it, because now I'm seeing my friends, kids and grandkids in there. Wow. So we try to make it special for them. And, and uh, they do, they've got a, a staff there that does a great job. I try not to hoover over them too much, you know, hover over them. Yeah. Uh, I let them do their thing and, and try to do the fundraising and, and work with Indiana State.
0: Yeah, uh, Many people w- would say that you really helped save football at Indiana State when you're with the program. Uh, the, the program, it struggled from kind of 2005 to 2009. It, it went just 2-54 in that stretch. And then as Indiana State's head coach, you, you came in uh, and, and you started your time there. You went 0-19 before you got a chance to win your first game. Then the program really got rolling and and you went 12 and 10 and had three straight winning seasons. uh, um, And so what did you learn about building a successful program during your time at Indiana State?
1: You've got to have patience and you got to rely on people doing their job. you got to recruit the right people and build the right culture. It took us the first two years, I think we had our first year, we had 36 players for spring football. So we couldn't Uh even have a normal scrimmage.
0: Wow. Yes.
1: And we had, you know, football wasn't important to a lot of kids before I got the job in December, they were on Christmas break. And when I, when they came back, uh, I sat down with the academic people and a lot of the players had scheduled on purpose classes at, during the times that we had practice. So I made it. So the very first spring, we said, okay, we're going to find out who's committed or not. We had taping that began at uh, four in the morning and we were on the field by five and off by seven so they could go eat and go. There was no, there's no classes at five in the morning. Yeah. So we got them up and worked them and and uh, the ones that stuck it out and, and made it ended up being winners. So, you know, it was just changing the culture, getting guys that, that love the game, wanted to be around good people, people that uh, care and give back. And the, the greatest thing about it is we got quite a few of those guys that were on those teams that are now coaching.
0: So yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Makes you
1: feel pretty good about it, you know. But yeah. it was the culture. It was you had to change the culture and get it to where you, you know, there was no excuses. You had to go to class, you had to do community service, you had to perform in every day in life, not just trying to be a good football player.
0: You're someone you bleed blue. How how full circle was it going from a ball boy growing up, uh going to Indiana State football games to then a standout player to eventually
1: coming back as the head coach? Oh, it's, it's, it was crazy, to be honest with you. Just because a lot of those guys that played in the, in the 70s come around and they remembered me. Um, Cam Cameron. Cam Cameron, who went on and became an NFL head coach, yeah. his dad, his stepdad was the head coach. So everybody knew Cam and myself. And so we got to know those guys. And I thought the world revolved around Indiana State football. And back then it was the Dallas Cowboys. That's what I thought football was only those two teams and realize that, you know, there's a bigger world out there, but it's special because it means so much. You grew, My dad went to Indiana state and graduated, played on the baseball team. My brother played on the base, the world series in 86 baseball team at Indiana state. Uh, everybody in my family is Indiana state people, my uncles, everybody. So to be able to go there and play there, coach there, GA there, you know, ball boy there, and now do radio there. It's it, it takes a lot of pride in it because, you know, no, I don't think anybody believes blue more than I do.
0: Yeah. How, how competitive was it in your house with your, you know, your brother? Because, like you said, he was a good athlete too.
1: Yeah, very competitive. <laughs> <laughs> He's two years younger than me, so it got to it, it would get kind of tense sometimes. But we always had each other's back, and I was proud of him. I made that drive all the way out there to Omaha to watch the College World Series, and nice. they didn't win. They got beat the first two games, I think. Oklahoma State had Robin Ventura back then and mm. I think uh, he was the one that knocked him out but it was it was you know you have each other's back and it was great to support them and you know I still see people the head coach uh from then Bob Warren still around so I see Bob and his wife Bonnie and and it's just now I feel starting to feel old because we sit around and talk about old times <laughs> Everything. You know, so. I try to stay away from them so I don't get too old too fast <laughs>
0: It's, it's ironic we're taping this this week because uh, you're getting ready to, to go to Fargo um, as part of the, the Indiana State broadcast team. Uh, Indiana State is going to take on North Dakota State this week. And, you know, back in October 13, 2012, uh, it, it was one of your teams. You go into Fargo and you upset the number one team in the nation at the time, North Dakota State. And that was one of the seasons they went on to win the national title. What do you remember about that trip and about that game?
1: Defense. I remember defense. Our defense showed up. We didn't score an offensive touchdown. We scored two defensive touchdowns. Johnny Tawala intercepted two passes, ran and back for scores. I remember Jesse Minner, my defensive coordinator, he and I just looking at each other going, hey, we could do this. You know, we were, we were trying to talk the kids in, on the sidelines and, hey, we can get this done. Yeah. And we had a tough group of kids. I mean, those kids – little undersized and you know they but they they fought they played well um they weren't going to be denied and and I reminded when I was with the Eagles I was in a I was in the quarterback room uh when Carson Wentz was the quarterback and in the NFL on oh, wow. Saturdays most of the players wear their college hoodies in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I called Indiana
1: State and had them send me a hoodie. So that next Saturday when I went to went to the meetings I had my Indiana State went on and I made sure that Carson Wentz kept seeing, you know, well, and I, his response was, well, I didn't play. I was the backup. But, hey, it doesn't matter. You're still advising. <laughs> and we got you.
0: Yeah.
1: So, it was a lot of pride in that day. It didn't last forever. I mean, I'll yeah. never forget it. I mean, we beat the number one team in the nation on the road and didn't score an offensive touchdown. So, I'm pretty proud of, of everybody for doing that because it just you had to tough it out that game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Uh, you're, and I was lucky.
1: My daughter was there. My wife was there. Oh, we nice. Took, uh, was on the plane. Uh, to go to the game. And one of the kids that was a friend of my daughter back then um, was on the plane. Now has been offered a scholarship to be a quarterback at Indiana state. And I have wow. pictures of him, my daughter hanging out in the locker room, but I keep telling him he needs to pick Indiana state. It's destiny.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. What a, yeah. What a full circle moment. Um, your dad, your dad Chuck was a long time gateway conference official for football and an officials evaluator then for the league. When you became a head coach, how did watching your dad's experience as an official influence how you interacted with the officials?
1: It gave me a better perspective that these guys are out there trying to do a great job. And, you know, every now and then as coaches, you lose your cool and you get upset. But then it realizes that these guys aren't out there intentionally trying to do something to you. You know, they they make mistakes, but they also for for the amount of mistakes that they make. What about all the ones they get right? I mean, they're they're most of them are probably hitting about ninety something percent of the correct calls. Mm-hmm. So it just made me have a, a a better understanding of what they're going through. So you know, it didn't do me any good to just scream and yell at them. I ended up trying to be friends. I spent more time in an official's locker room growing up than I did in a in a player's locker room.
0: Interesting. Traveling right? around
1: with my dad while he did games, whether it be football, basketball, umpire, and baseball. So uh, that was kind of the 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 crowd that I hung out with. So I kind of respect, I respect what they do and and know how to talk to them. I actually wow. around the corner have a picture of my dad refereeing a basketball game at Indiana State, and he's the basketball official underneath the basket during a free throw. And the guy in the lane uh, with his hands on his knees right next to him is Larry Bird. So, wow!
0: Wow. That's I have awesome. a lot of
1: good memories of what my dad was doing back then.
0: Yeah, I bet. Your dad, he was so beloved in the Terre Haute community. He was on the city council. He was a coach. He was a family man. Um, and you know, he was largely known for trying to bridge a lot of gaps in the community that at times could be divided. How did his example and his experiences really shape your life?
1: Well, it gave me perspective on, you don't judge people. Um, you don't, you don't, uh, yourself in a situation where you just assume that someone's going to be good or bad or do this everybody's uh everybody should be respected everybody should be treated right uh he'd go out of his way to make sure you know uh people were had a, a good experience when they were around him i can remember you know when my dad passed away in 2007 in april he was running for re-election uh for city council and the, the people running against him went out and got another person so he, he when he died the election wasn't until June. Uh, they kept his name on the ballot and he won dead. So he, my mom had to take his seat because I lived at that time. I was coaching at the University of Washington.
0: Yeah. So,
1: you know, I'd hear stories about him. People come up to me every day. You know, I loved your dad. He got me a job. He gave me my first job. At one point, he was the personnel uh, director at uh, Columbia House. Remember the old 1400 North Fruit Ridge? If you pay a yeah. dollar, you'll get 10 CDs or <laughs> albums or whatever. My dad was a personnel director there
0: wow. and then he was at
1: human resource hospital. Okay. So he would hire a lot of people yes. and you know, I get those stories all the time. You know, Hey, your dad introduced me to my wife and you know, there was a, a parent came up and, and pulled me to the side and said, no one's supposed to know this, but there was a house fire and my sister and her kids passed away mm-hmm. and they didn't really have anything. And they didn't want anybody to know this, but your dad went in and paid for their funeral. So, wow. you know, just little things like that kind of make you, you know, it, it's kind of hard to choose to, to fill. and yeah. I, I can't live up to to what he's done and what he's doing, but or did. But uh, it's nice to know and, and hear, have people say those things in front of my children, because they they weren't around. He wasn't around. He passed away when our oldest was only two, and our yeah. second oldest was like a newborn. Mm-hmm. So my youngest two never, ever saw him or other than pictures. So it's good to hear people talk about him in in a good way because there's a lot of negative out there in the world now.
0: Oh gosh. Especially with social media. Very divided.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, It's divided here. You you know, after your dad passed in 2007, you developed an acronym DASH, which stands for discipline, attitude, sacrifice, and habits. What's, what's the backstory behind DASH as it relates to your father?
1: Well, we were standing around looking at the, at, we were at the cemetery and they just got, you know, when they, when they, when you pass away and you have to have the funeral, they don't put the headstone on there right away. And it takes a while to, to make it and let the earth settle. So we went out there when it was done and I saw his name in the year 1932 and then a dash. And then 2007 when he went out. So I figured you were know, just talking to a couple of coaches and talking to people. Hey, you know what you think about it? You know, that the year you're born, you have no control over. The year you go out, you have no control over. But that line in between that dash, that you have control over. That's your lifeline. That's everything that you do, how you affect people, how you affect your, your world and, and help others. And the only way to do that is by having discipline, a positive attitude, make sacrifice and create really good habits. And that's how we came up with that. We, around and brainstormed it i wish i would have patented it because now i heard there's people using it on video Oh, really there's people there's stuff on youtube oh yeah Yeah. so it's really good uh just to to think about your lifeline and and how you can control it and figuring that you know discipline get up in the morning eat right do the right things you know treat people the right way be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it that's discipline pretty simple and always having a positive attitude, even when times are, you know, it been very easy after the second year at Indiana State say, nope, this can't get done. There's no way. But you just kept the positive attitude. And then uh, sacrifice. We all have to make sacrifices. My kids and my wife have made sacrifices their whole life up until now for me. So now it's time for me to sacrifice for them. Okay. So they can have a great experience. And then the habits. you got to have great habits. Work habits, healthy life choice habits of how you eat, how you you know, treat your body, how you treat other people, just good habits, just getting up and being a good person that day. That's how we came up with it.
0: You you mentioned your your oldest daughter, Kaylee, and I I was reading something when she was eight years old. This is when you were at Georgia State. She said she was going to be the first female football player in Georgia State history. Fast forward now to to now, she's in high school, and she's playing as an offensive guard and on the defensive line for – Terre Haute South, JV's football team. How have you been one of the biggest champions for her dream of playing football?
1: Well, i just told her, and as I tell all my kids, you can do whatever you want. I'm 100% behind you, I'll support you. My wife will all support you, but you have to do something. Mm-hmm. And she was around, we had a locker for her. So when we were at Indiana State and Georgia State, she had a locker in the locker room with the coaches. Awesome. She was always around, I took her to every game, Pulled her out of school and took her on road trips. Just had her around uh, so that she could uh, see it. And, you know, she's, she's doing well. She loves it. I've never forced it on her. I'm never going to tell her that she can't do it. I'm never going to tell her that she has to do it. You know, she figures it out. But she got to dress out this year as a sophomore. She dressed for all the varsity games. She's played in a couple varsity games. And uh, she's loving it. She has a great time. They're getting ready for the playoffs, the sectionals. They play Friday it's the number two team in the state so good luck to them but you know then she goes into wrestling she wrestles she finished eighth in the state last year as a freshman
0: uh,
1: in wrestling in her division so then she Mm -hmm. goes into track and does shot and discus and I have two dancers that uh oh yeah my sister lives here in town and she owns a school of dance
0: okay
1: and I have two that are really good at dancing and then my son plays whatever sports on television Nice. He's going from football. He's just played youth football. Now that season ended and he's starting back. He's got basketball tonight. So whatever's on, he's going for it. So they all have to do something, but uh, we're behind him and support him hundred percent.
0: How much does Kay- Kaylee pick your brain about football and X's and O stuff?
1: It, it's funny. Is that she doesn't really, she will,
0: Yeah.
1: she'll ask me stuff, but she's a very loyal person. So if I go to her, I'm not the dad that I'm not a helicopter dad. I'm not, I don't go to the practices. I show up, I stand in the end zone uh, behind the fence for the game. So I can, I, I can see the blocking schemes, you know, but I don't say anything to the coaches or cause a couple of the coaches play for me. So I don't really say anything, <laughs> but when I ask her, I'll ask her a question like, Hey, how are you guys blocking power? And she'll start talking to me about it. And I'll give her some suggestions and stuff. And then I'll say, hey, well, what about this? How come you guys, you're not on our team, Dad? My coach knows what he's doing. You can't coach me. I'm saying, oh, I'm not trying to coach you. I'm just <laughs> trying to make sure that you know, you know, what, what what's going on in there. If anybody ever has any suggestions, I'm here for you. So yeah. I try not to push it on them. I try to stay away from that because she gets, she's got some good coaching. Yeah. You know, Brock Lowe that played fullback for us here in, in tailback uh, with Shakir Bell. Um, he's, he's her co- position coach in high school. So you know, they we, we have feedback, but I, I try not to involve her just so that I don't she's just Lord, whatever their coach tells her, she's going to get it done. Yeah, so I try not to try to make corrections or anything just because I'm not trying to show anybody. up.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, as a former coach and, and all, but also a, a girl dad, what, what excites you about her playing football and, and what scares you?
1: There is I'm not scared at all. Uh-huh. because she's got a helmet and shoulder pads and she knows how to keep her head up and she can shoot her hands. She knows technique. She'll figure it out as she goes, when it comes to the size that she won't probably be able to stay at offensive line as she gets older, probably next year, she might have to move like outside linebacker or
0: something.
1: Yeah. So I'm not scared of her getting hurt or anything like that. The thing that excites me the most, there's no greater joy than be a dad and stand there at a high school football game. And you can hear numerous kids yelling, he just got tackled by a girl or he just got blocked by a girl. And then just, you're slapping high fives with your wife, you know, you're like, yeah, that's right. And so that, that is the biggest thing. That's a big thrill.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Just to hear that. Oh, amazing. I love it. It's getting, putting tears in my eyes hearing that. <laughs> you spent, you, know, you spent some time in the NFL with the Seahawks, the Packers, and, and most recently the Eagles. You were uh, the offensive quality control Coach and assistant's running back coach, and correct me if I'm wrong. There, um, what's something people don't realize about that Super Bowl winning season uh, when you were with the Eagles?
1: You well, know, on my end, it happened so fast. You know, I was at Georgia State, and that didn't work out. I was actually going to University of Cincinnati. Uh, my uh, uh, Luke Fickle is the head coach, but my my daughter that plays Kaylee, mm-hmm. her godfather is Mike Denbrock the offensive coordinator. We were together at uh, Stanford, Notre Dame, Washington and then he came with me to Indiana State and then he got hired at Notre Dame. So, I was going to go stay with him and be an analyst at the University of Cincinnati. I went to I went to the Eagles to go to training camp as an intern because the guy that was our GA, John D Filippo, was the quarterback coach and he said, "Hey, you can't sit on your butt. You know, get up here, and we'll just go to you. Just do the internship, and then go back and go back to Cincinnati. I said okay, so we went up there, did the internship, left. Was at Cincinnati, and then they called me and asked me to come back, and and they had a job for me. So I went back, and I was there for the two years. I don't know if people realize how much you put into it in the NFL. You know, uh, the the role. I wasn't going to just come in and take somebody's job. I mean, they they made a role for me as the you know. Offensive assistant, quality control, uh, coaching assistant, whatever you want to call it. And it's just the amount of hours mm-hmm. that you put in are not conducive for a 50-something-year-old guy with four kids. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just, you get in. It was great. I loved it. I loved all those coaches and that organization. And they got, I got a Super Bowl ring, you know. But I don't know if people realize that my wife and kids stayed in, in Atlanta that year. I lived, she had a brother and his wife that lived in, right outside of Philly. So I lived in at their house, but I was going into work at five 30 in the morning on Monday. And there's nights, there's probably times, most of the time during the season, you didn't get home until like Thursday about 11 o'clock at night. Wow. There's a lot of work to be done. So yeah. <laughs> kind of where where's wears you, but at the same time, it's, it makes it fun when it comes to those Super Bowl. you know, you getting in the playoffs, it's all worth it. Yeah. You know, so it was that. And I don't know if people realize it. there everybody was so worried about, the Patriots playing the Patriots in the Super Bowl and all the rumors and things about your room's going to be Bill check's going to bug your room. And they're going to, they're going to find a way to get your scripts. So we kept a shredder, you know, because you stay in a hotel for a week and we have conference meeting rooms. We kept a shredder in the meeting room. And then at the end of each day, we would take all his practice plans and scripts and shred them. But that wasn't it because they were like, Nope, just shredding them is not going to do it. They can pay people to come in and put those things together and, and read them. That's just how secretive they are. So we had to keep a big hefty bag. And after each time we shredded stuff, we put it in a hefty bag, took it, I took it to my room in my hotel room and left it in put it in the closet. On the day of the Super Bowl, me and my wife get all the, all the hefty bags of shredded documents that we were scared that the Patriots were going to get. Took them to a, a rental car, put them in the back of a rental car, drove them to a dumpster. Down the street and jumped them in a the dumpster, figuring there's no way in the world they could piece all that stuff together in time. So,
0: got well, obviously, it worked out.
1: <laughs> it, it was, it was crazy. So, oh my God, it, it was, it was fun.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh. Great experience.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible.
1: Standing wow. on the, I wasn't even worried about the game. You know, you, you knew you were going to play well in the game. Darren Sproles and myself wanted to make sure we got out on the field early enough because on the Jumbotrons they were showing all the parties mm. and Darius Rucker was playing live and me and uh, Darren Sproles wanted to get out there in time to stand at midfield and just watch his concert, we weren't <laughs> worried about pregame warm ups or a Super Bowl, <laughs> we were more worried about making sure we got to see Darius Rucker.
0: That's hilarious, I love it. <laughs> When you were at Indiana State, you were, you were just the second African American football coach in school history following Lou West's tenure. How did that play into the normal pressure you, you already felt to turn around a struggling program?
1: Well, I, it did, or to be honest with you, it really didn't play a big role to me. I knew in some people's eyes it would be, but I'm different. I had a different situation than Lou did because he's not from here. You know, I, I mean, there were people that were in the administration here that have known me since I was a little kid and knew that I was a ball boy and a student and a GA. So it was a little different. It was it, to me, it was more pressure because if I was told, usually when a head coach signs a contract, it's a five-year deal. It's a first-year deal. So I went in and they offered me the contract. It was a four-year deal. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, excuse me, but usually it's five, you know, and they said, well, listen, here's the deal. If you don't have it turned around and you're not winning by your fourth year, we're just going to drop the program. So then you got to figure the pressure you feel as a former ball boy and player and and GA there that, oh, my gosh, you can't get dropped on my watch. Yeah. You know, and, and I would that would live with me the rest of my life. So those were the those were the pressures. Nobody could put more pressure on me than myself. Mm-hmm. But that was the pressure that I felt was if we don't get this right, then it's going to be gone. And all my former teammates and those guys that played in the sixties and seventies that knew me are going to look and say, Hey, why couldn't you get this saved? So it wasn't so much about anything else other than making sure we got it to the point where they quit talking about dropping football and they quit talking about it and they did. So that, that was the, that was the most pressure. It wasn't so much anything else, you know, cause I, I, I know the heartbeat of Terre Haute. So I kind of get an idea of how it works here. And so I, I, the, the pressure, whether you're African-American or you're not, that was secondary compared to you got we gotta make sure this program survives.
0: Yeah,
1: but Everything yeah. was done in the intent of saving the program and playing kids and, and winning games.
0: Yeah, mission accomplished, obviously. Uh, w- one of the reasons of many that I love football and, and sports is that it's, it's such a melting pot of different backgrounds and races and socioeconomic experiences and just life experiences. From your time in the NFL, why why don't why do we not see more head coaches of color represented, particularly in the NFL ranks?
1: Because you don't hardly really have any. I don't think you have any owners that are uh, of color, of that are not, you know, a minority. There, I, I I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but no. I, I mean, if you don't have an owner mm-hmm. that's willing to do that, most owners do what they feel comfortable with. They're going to hire the people that they know. You know, I know they have the Rooney rule and you're supposed to interview, but you know and I know that, that can that can be a farce. They can go around that and call one of their assistants in and say, hey, we interviewed it. we interviewed a minority, you know, knowing that he wasn't gonna get it. So it's a, to be honest with you, it's an old boys network. It's hard to break um, until there's more, unless there's owners or people in, in general managers that are in position to do the hiring. Because there's a lot of good, qualified African American and and look at Ron Rivera. Um, I think Ron is Hispanic. Yeah, you know I'm, I think so. So there's there's Tom Flores. There's there's people you know that uh, are of color that are out there that are good enough. It's getting that change. Who's going to be the first one to say, Hey, this is how we're going to go. You know, here's the change. And then you're not going to get more head coaches. So you also start getting them in coordinator positions. Yeah. You can say you need owners. It's the people that are in position of power, the owner, the general manager, a coordinator, you know, you're going to start get, having to get guys qualified, you know, working through and there's many out there that are qualified to become coordinators. And then they can say, you know, well, Hey, he's been a coordinator and been successful. Let's give him a shot. So, you know, and that's how Marvin Lewis became one. I was Marvin's graduate assistant coach at the University of New Mexico. And he did such a great job of climbing the ranks as a, position coach, linebackers, you know, and then all of a sudden he's a coordinator, did a great job, had an outstanding defense. They won the Super Bowl when I think when he was with the Ravens and he gets a head job. So hopefully that, you know, that trend will go and once once we start getting more guys in position of like coordinator positions, GM positions, maybe an owner here and there. And then, then there's a change and start changing.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I was just, I was just talking to my husband, uh, Sunday, we were watching the Bucs game here at home. And um, we were talking about uh, Byron Lefkowitz, the offensive coordinator of the, the Bucks. And they said, you know, I, I would think in the next year or two, he's probably going get to get a head coaching position just because of the job he's doing with the Bucs right now.
1: Yeah. And Bruce, Bruce Arians is a great guy to work for. If you notice his other coordinators, Todd Bowles.
0: Yeah. And yeah. they
1: do a great job. You know, so he's got two African-American coordinators and I know he's going to try to get them head jobs. It's just getting the right owner to listen, you know, because they see these shiny toys out there and they think, uh, you know, this is safer for me or more comfortable for me. You know what I mean? It's those guys. And I'm not putting Urban Meyer down at all. Yeah. But you go get Urban Meyer, hadn't been coaching for a while, has had health issues. You bring him into a situation in the NFL and he's never uh, done that. And now all of a sudden – you've got guys that you've passed over that could that qualified to do that. So yeah. sometimes it's perception, the owner's perception who's going to make a splash for him. You know, it's all motivated by money. Mm-hmm. You course. know, everything has to be uh, about uh, what's going to help bring fans and will I make a splash doing this. So, you know, it, it'll change. I don't know that it when, but hopefully it will continue to change once we start getting people in position uh, like a coordinator job or a GM job or an owner job.
0: Yeah. This season, besides your day job at the Boys and Girls Club, you're, you're working as a radio analyst with Luke Varden on Indiana State football broadcasts. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to ask you how much of a pain it is to work with Luke.
1: Oh, <laughs> Luke is awesome. Yeah. He's the best. The only thing I get upset with him is that he'll take all the equipment And want to put it all together himself. I'm like, let me help you. You know what I mean? (laughs) Let me figure out what wire goes where. And uh, he's been great. I mean, I've I've learned a lot from him uh, and Brian Jennings, who who does some of the radio some of the times just listening and, and learning. You know, I worry about dead space and saying too many, uh, anything like that. So it's, it's been really good. And Luke is not a pain in the butt whatsoever. He goes out of his way to help me and he's, he's, he's taught me a lot. So I'd like to keep doing this with Luke for a long time.
0: Yeah. Luke is uh, one of my favorite people. He just, uh, he's another guy that he, he bleeds blue and just, uh, just a phenomenal human being.
1: He's genuine.
0: Yeah. He's a genuine totally. good person. Yeah. And he
1: cares about you and he goes out of his way to help me. And I just like to help him better, learn how to put all the wires together for him.
0: <laughs> how, how natural of a transition has it been going from coaching to the broadcast side of things?
1: The only thing that I've ever felt any pressure about is making sure that I don't say a bad word Mm -hmm. on the air at coaching every now and then it slips. (laughs) So now you can't let it slip, but it's been good because I get to talk about football. Luke does the play by play that to me, that's the hardest thing in the world. Just sitting there listening to him. He's rattling things off as they happen. And I'm like, how could you think about that? And sounds so professional and so good at it. And all I have to do is sit up there and describe what happened. my wife told me she's just remember you're 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 on the radio, so you, the people that are listening can't see what's going on. So give them a picture of what's going on. So I try to stay in my world and just talk about the football, that scheme, and the decision process, and what they're doing. You know, the reason that this came open because they rolled to a, a cover three and the corner was off, and they ran a you know slant on the backside, just things like that, so people can get a football understanding. Yeah. So I let Luke do all the tough stuff.
0: Yeah. Nice. It's been fun.
1: I get to talk football. I get to I live. Mean, it's still yeah. in Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And you're you don't have you know you you can go home after the games, and you're you're not having to break down film and get ready for the next opponent necessarily, or at least not not per se the same pressure that you felt as the, the head coach doing it.
1: And I don't think they're going to drop football in the end state because I'm in the radio booth.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Nor do I think
1: they'll ever talk about that again. You yeah,
0: know? I would hope. I would hope not. Um, you, you were, before you were a head coach, you, you were, you coached a lot of different position groups, but you frequently coached wide receivers, uh, running backs as well throughout your career, Wh- which Valley receiver and running back has impressed you the most so far this season that, that you've seen?
1: Well, the running back we just saw from Youngstown state McLaughlin,
0: yeah, Jaleo. really good.
1: Yeah. His feet, his change of direction, his suddenness. You know he could come to almost a stop, and then next step he's like at full speed. You know I just I know his size is a little small. I think he was a little dinged up. He was really good player. Um, I've been really impressed with a lot of the quarterbacks. The quarterback at South Dakota, I thought, had played very well. Um, the quarter where is who I'm trying to think of who else I just saw that I thought was uh, it was a South Dakota quarter, South Dakota quarterback. And I'm trying to remember who all we played. Missouri State quarterback played really well against us.
0: Yeah, Jason you know, Sheldon. But
1: uh, yeah, I'm interested to see a couple of the other guys. I've I've heard a lot of, about them. So it's Luke gives me all the rundowns. Yeah. You know, he studies really well. Also he sends me notes and, and Seth Montgomery sends me stuff so I could look at it. But I've been impressed with the talent in the in the Missouri Valley. I mean, when you watch it you've got guys that can play at the next level. It's just getting, getting that opportunity and they will, you know, the, the, the size of the receivers at Missouri state, you know, those two, those guys are big and long and, you know, the the, the tight end slash receiver that Youngstown state had, I think is Ogletree. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Big kid, six foot seven, you know, so I haven't seen North Dakota state or Illinois state or, or North Dakota or, I think that's it. South Dakota State's quarterback was. now. See, that was so long ago. I tried to burn that out of my brain. <laughs> that was one of those games when you walk out and you say it was like 44 to nothing or 44 or whatever it was. And you walk out there and say, well, they were about that good. Yeah. Usually like you walked out of a game at Missouri state. And it was like, what, what just happened? We messed up for a minute, like right, right, two minutes uh, left and a half. And it's just, we gave up like 21 points. And so it was like more of a shell shock. South Dakota state just came down and just punched you right in the mouth. And that quarterback was, he made great decisions. So there's a lot of talent. It's, it's fun to see. I, I, I truly believe if they allow it, I know they won't, but there's seven teams that can make the playoffs in the, in the Missouri Valley that should be, could have, could make it. Now, you know, and I know they're going to cap it somewhere. Yeah. You know, probably around five. Yeah. You wish it would be more, hopefully six or seven, but there's teams that are definitely worthy. I'd rather see a, a a seventh team from the Missouri Valley in there rather than a two team from the Ohio Valley or any other conference, to be honest with yeah. you.
0: Yeah, no, you're so, so right on that. Um, as we talked about, you, Indiana state heads to Fargo this weekend uh, to take on North Dakota state and they do. So they've won two of their last three games. Um, what, what are the biggest differences you see in this Indiana state team in recent weeks? That's really contributed to the victories.
1: They're playing better on offense. They're more yeah. balanced. They're taking, they're more aggressive. They're taking shots. Dante Hendricks is back and he really helps. Yeah. You know, they also got uh, hopper back, Michael Hopper back, and he's got some speed. So they're running the ball better. They're doing a really good job of 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 being aggressive with the play calling, you know, doing the things that they need to do. And then defensively, I think they've been solid. I know they've had a breakdown here and there, but they've been pretty solid all year. Brad Wilson, the D coordinator, does a great job putting his players in position to have success. Yeah.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I had you guys. They're here. starting to
1: play like a team.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's good. Oh, no, it's fine. Uh, I was just going to say, unfortunately, I had you guys the week of when you played South Dakota and you were incredibly banged up. I mean, you're, you're, you know, your starting quarterback was out. I I mean, there's, there was a laundry list of guys that were out that game. So it's good to see that you've gotten a little more healthy, too.
1: Yeah. We looked like we were running in sand at South Dakota. Yeah. I was blaming it on the turf, but (laughs) it wasn't. It was
0: them.
1: Yeah. We just couldn't put anything together offensively, couldn't run the ball and, Last game, I think uh, Curly Grand had over 150 yards rushing. So mm-hmm. when you have balance and you can run the ball and your defense is being solid, you'll have a chance to win all of them.
0: Yeah. Coach, um, I, I appreciate you taking the time today to, to chat with me. Uh, it's so great to have you back or, around the league again and to, to, uh, to see you in person last, uh, I guess that would have been the beginning of October. Um, but anything that I haven't asked you, that you would like to add or that you think people should know?
1: I'm gonna be back one day in it again. I just gotta get a couple kids through <laughs> through their school, you know. But you know, it's I'm very thrilled to be here with you and talking and you know, just any kind of role I can do to to be with the Missouri Valley or Indiana State in any capacity, it just kind of feeds that that hunger for me. You know, I I'm around it, but I'm not totally committed until I can get my children. You know, a little bit older, and then we'll get back at it.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure your kids probably really appreciate that and having you around a little bit more now. And and I'm sure, I'm sure they're super thankful for the sacrifices you're making right now.
1: And I got a couple of them that instead of calling me coach, I can tell when they're not happy with me, they call me father.
0: <laughs> father,
1: come in here. So I, they're not used to me being around as much. You know? Yeah. So I, I, I make them change things or put things away or, Hey, don't put your backpack. There it goes over there. (laughs) I kind of wear on them a little bit. I got to have somebody to coach
0: around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, cool. Well, good to, good to see you. Good to chat with you. Um, And I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up again soon.